0: Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Draitzer and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 9 and before I turn to my wonderful guests this week I just want to remind listeners or possibly say it for the first time if you've just come to this podcast that Counterpunch is truly independent media and we take the word independent seriously um, we are not like the pseudo alternative left, we are not like the corporate media there is no man behind the curtain there is no massive stream of funding supporting this project, it really is dependent upon you guys so if you like the podcast, if you like the website where you find all of those articles every day, um, consider becoming a supporter of Counterpunch by uh, getting a print subscription. Remember that the Counterpunch print magazine is really one of the best print publications that you'll find anywhere with regard to political issues and social issues and cultural critique and analysis and a wide variety of perspectives, a wide variety of subjects. And um, of course, you get all of that material, you get all of that great content, but you're also a supporter of this. Product project. And I think that that is equally important. You know, we've talked uh, at length on this show and elsewhere about the The simple fact that, quite frankly, if you know anything about the alternative media, it's pretty grim. There are very few spaces that I would say are truly independent, and Counterpunch is one of them, and in my humble opinion, it stands head and shoulders above the rest. So, um, become become a subscriber to the magazine. Support this project. I think that not only is it worth it for us, of course, and what we're trying to do, but I think it'll make you feel good about becoming a supporter of independent media. Now, I also would urge you that if you're enjoying this podcast and the guests that I'm trying to bring to you every week, give us a positive review on iTunes you would be shocked how important, how effective that is at raising the profile of this podcast, as putting it up to the top of those recommendation lists and bringing it to the, to the attention of more people this is absolutely critical as well so uh, support Counterpunch by uh, getting that print subscription support the podcast with the iTunes reviews, you will be glad you did it and of course we would be eternally grateful. With all of that being said, I'd like to turn to my first guest this week. Um, really, it's a privilege to speak with Charmeen Narwani. Sharmin um, is an excellent political commentator, geopolitical analyst. Um, she has been a contributor to many different news sites. You've, you can find her work all over the place. Um, I've come across Charmine's work a number of times, and I really do think that it's some of the some of the best top-notch analysis that you're going to find anywhere. So I was happy to get in touch with Charmaine and have her come on Counterpunch Radio. Um, I think that there's a lot that we need to discuss. So with uh, w- with that being said, Charmaine, welcome to Counterpunch Radio.
1: Thank you, Eric. It's really a pleasure.
0: Um, I want to begin by sort of Tackling, I guess it's sort of a specific question, but in a very general sort of way, because there have been so many developments in the, in the war in Syria. I mean, the trajectory of this war since 2011, 2012 is really, in, in many ways is sort of shocking and, and it's sort of incredible how it's evolved. But I think that we've kind of hit a major turning point in this conflict, say in the last uh, four to six months, especially in terms of some of the battles going on along the Syria-Lebanon border I know you're based in in Lebanon so you probably have a interesting perspective on that so let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the war in Syria how you read it from from your perspective in Beirut and especially that conflict along the border
1: yeah well you're right there have um, there has been um, a number of setbacks uh, and and certainly the balance of power seems to have shifted, and uh, if you're reading the Western press, the English language press, um, it seems like game over for the Syrian government in recent months. Um, but, you know, this has been a much longer battle than anyone could possibly have foreseen at the start, um, and, and there are turns in all battles. Um, this has been, this came as a surprise, because at the beginning of the year, if you remember, um, the, the impression was that the Syrian government and its allies were making substantial gains in any territory they targeted. Um, so, you know, to focus in on what's happening on the Lebanese-Syrian border, um, very recently, in the last month and a half, uh, Hezbollah with the Syrian government, hand in hand, have sought to um, liberate that border from militant Islamist groups. Um, al-Qaeda, ISIS, and others. Uh, And the the goal is to seal off the Lebanese border. And Kalamun is the area that crosses over the Syrian and Lebanese side of the borders. Um, It's the most important border for the Syrians because it's one of al-Qaeda's biggest weapons hubs um, used for smuggling both weapons and fighters into Syria. Um, Without closing that border... Lebanon and Syria are both vulnerable and so Hezbollah stepped up because the Lebanese army was not uh, because of political infighting in Lebanon and and said you know there's nothing stopping us now we we need to stop the 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 onslaught and it will come to Lebanon next Uh, so in the last 40 days Hezbollah and the Syrian army have managed to capture over 250 square kilometers of territory in Kalamun. They've closed three critical border crossings um, and have been able to surround and isolate Al Qaeda, cutting off supply lines and and such things. So, you know, there has been also, we don't read about it as much, but ISIS has entered uh, Lebanon and uh, we see them in the Beka and in the districts outside Ersel, uh which is uh, the, the barren areas outside Erzal are where Hezbollah are fighting and have mostly liberated. Um, so the goal is the closing of borders and clearing out of pockets of militants um, that could threaten both Syria and Lebanon. And um, what just something that I think you know is worth mentioning because we're not reading about it. Uh, there are small communities of people who know it and are talking about it, but we're not reading in the media. Is that there's um, actually been a very interesting and quiet offensive going on beyond Kalamun. So while the capture of Kalamun is is still is still uh, underway. There have been movements between the Syrian government, Syrian army, and and uh, and Hezbollah south of Kalamoun, uh, and there looks to be potentially a strategy to cut off um, areas beyond that. So Zabadani, which in December 2011 was the first area that uh, was was taken over and occupied by rebel fighters, um, uh, it, it seems that they're they're looking to now cut cut off Zabadani and purge it of militants, um, which would then cut off access to the to Damascus and the areas around Damascus that are major pockets for some of these militants, um, and then head south of Damascus to Kunetra, to the Golan Heights, and um, from there recapture border crossings between Lebanon and Israel. Uh, and then, you know, further south, we have Dera, a major rebel stronghold where battles you know it's it's the first place where things kicked off in March of 2011 mm-hmm. um so so there's this other quiet offensive that's going on that people aren't talking about and you can't you can't actually say i mean i know there was a lot of panic when um these groups and al-Qaeda stormed idlib and took over jisr shurur uh in in the last two months and uh you know actually they haven't made um gains since then so um there are ebbs and flows in all battles. I don't think you know anyone uh, can call it.
0: I think that's absolutely correct. Um, you know, I've, I've written about it as well, and I think that one other dimension that I just want to add here for listeners who aren't necessarily as familiar with some of these regions, for instance, Kalamun and even Ersal, these are, um, well, Kalamun especially is a mountainous region, and, and the, mm-hmm. the geography of that region the, along that border area makes it so strategically important, not only because it's really kind of a safe haven for a lot of these al-Nusra groups and some of the other uh, extreme militant factions that have taken refuge there, but it's an important sort of nether region between the fighting that's going on in Syria and the quote-unquote refugee camps of, through which you have a lot of these fighters streaming back and forth across the border. So not only are they cutting off the fighters, they're essentially separating them from their own base of support inside of Lebanon.
1: Uh, that's absolutely correct. And I mean, it's it's uh, it's a tough area to um, to purge, uh, because exactly as you said, it's mountainous and there are a lot of hiding places there. Um, but it, it's, it's essential and it was left untouched for too long in this conflict, which allowed the militants to swell and to have strongholds and bases, um, from which they could, uh, you know, plan activities and then also retreat to when they, when they sort of, uh, um, Got beaten back in areas like uh, the reef Damascus, the areas around Damascus. So, um, you know, Hezbollah and the Syrian army finally stepped up and said enough is enough. And I think when Kalamun is recaptured, we're going to see a different kind of turning point uh, in this battle.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the other things that I've written about recently, um, and I know many of other, other people have been following it as well. And you just touched on it a little bit in your, in your answer there, uh, has to do with the city of Idlib. And for people who don't know, I mean, Idlib is a major Syrian region and it's cl- very close to the border with Turkey. And it's in Idlib where you've seen a lot of those fighters that have now been documented as having, uh, let's call it direct and indirect support from Turkish intelligence and the Turkish government and the Turkish military, that a lot of the fighting around the city of Idlib is really kind of connected to this larger um, strategy that the Turkish government has been following. I know that some of my sources who are actually in Idlib have talked about literally eyewitnessing, you know, eyewitnessing um, Turkish forces firing in providing air support for some of the Nusra fighters and some of these other groups. And so let's talk a little bit about the importance of Idlib and then the larger importance as you see it of the Turkish role in supporting these fighters.
1: Well, you know, we've certainly seen them step up. I mean, they've been uh, involved in the conflict in Syria since the start and, um, But we've seen a uh, much stepped-up activity uh, since since March or so this year. So in March, the Syrian army launched a massive offensive in northern Aleppo. And at that point, we saw Turkey uh, suddenly opening up its border and flooding jihadists in to essentially save the day. And then we saw the emergence of a new group uh, called Jesh al-Fatah, which um, consists of al-Qaeda, which is al-Nusra, the Syrian al-Qaeda, Ahrar al-Sham, another major faction, uh, Islamist faction, and uh, uh, half a dozen other groups. They took over Idlib, jisr Shawar, and started heading further south um, but they hit a wall in Al-Ghad, and they uh, it it may be that they're spent you know somebody a military person here it, within this resistance axis noted to me uh, just just last week that uh, th- these people you know you can always launch surprise operations especially if they're well planned but um, maintaining and holding ground is a different thing and the further these people go afield from their their base camps and their control centers where they have their supplies and their men, um, the harder it is for them uh, to sustain uh, the momentum and the weaker they become. So uh, we have seen this with the the Idlib onslaught. Um, you know, they managed to take a major area, which was viewed as strategically important for the, the Syrian government. Um, but, you know, After that, we we assumed that they were going to move into Latakia, into key um, majority Alawite pro-Syrian government areas, and that has not happened. So I think, uh, you know, they had the element of surprise. They managed to take over something, a major area, and gain that momentum, but it's fallen flat now. So... Uh, Turkey, of course, it's uh, it has been running weapons and fighters across those borders for a long time now. Mm -hmm. It's become it's very much come into the open. It it was quiet and um, Turkey remained mum about this and and nobody pointed too many fingers. But it's unavoidable right now, as you mentioned, uh, to note. and, And I think right now in Turkey. There's uh, there are court cases about um, exactly. uh, Turkish intelligence officers and security forces who are have been imprisoned because they, they called attention to the fact that um, Turkish security uh, uh, personnel and vehicles were transporting fighters and weapons across the Syrian border. So you know they there's there's been a lot of. Um, uh, repercussions domestically politically in Turkey because of these activities. And as they come more into the open, even more so. And of course, in the recent elections, you saw the AKP lose um, significant ground. And so undoubtedly, Syria and the role Turkey's played in Syria has, has, has had a part in that. Um but you know another thing about these fighters the, the the Turks can do whatever they want, and now they're doing it with absolute support from Saudi Arabia and Qatar um, and from you know um, the the more powerful NATO countries that have operation rooms in Syria and are helping guiding these these uh, onslaughts but ultimately, these fighters, whether in Syria or in Iraq, cannot enter areas, they cannot hold areas um, that are not supportive environments. Um, and I'm not talking just about areas that are not Sunni, but even Sunni areas, like in Hama and Homs, where they are not supported by local communities. Um, and that's where they're always going to hit a wall. Uh, so, you know, I mean, just recently, we've seen pushback from in Suweda, right, uh, heavily Druze, in northwestern Hamas, civilians are fighting back through national defense forces in other ways. And, you know, in, in Hasaka or Deir Azur, they just have not been able to to gain these territories in any significant way.
0: Well, that's, that's definitely true, and I just want to, not that I'm necessarily going to toot my own horn here, although I guess I am a little bit. A couple of weeks ago, Counterpunch published an article by yours truly uh, entitled, Did the War in Syria Just Become a Regional War? And um, in that article, I was writing about a lot of these developments that you and I are talking about here, and one of the things that has been um, completely, I mean really, just totally ignored in Western media is the role that uh, certain allied forces, uh, whether or not directly Iranian forces or allied with the Iranians, their intervention in the country as well, particularly in uh, in al-Hasakah and in some of the other places around Idlib and uh, elsewhere along that Turkish border. I mean, we have eyewitness accounts of well, it's it's not entirely known exactly how many, but uh, a good number, thousands of Iranian and or Iraqi and or Afghan militia fighters who have come to fight alongside Hezbollah and the Syrian Arab army. And to a large extent, there is now a full-blown regional component here. If on the one hand, you have Turkish military and Turkish intelligence, which is all documented, it's all come out in Turkish uh, courts through wiretaps. Uh, this is why the president of Turkey, Erdogan, has called for a life sentence for the editor of one of the most important newspapers in that country, the Cumhuriyet, because they have now made public all of this information regarding Turkish intelligence's involvement. You, of course, we know the Saudis, the Qataris, and the and the Israelis who have been providing medical aid and other supplies to the Al Nusra fighters. This is documented by the United Nations, and so really, there's a regional component to this war, and that part of the narrative is almost entirely. Blacked out. Uh,
1: yes, you're right. I mean, it's very hard to avoid these days, though. I mean, you do see much more reference to it, even in the Western media, um, and I think some of that comes from the fact that you've had uh, clear admissions by senior Western officials um, who have who have become far more anxious, perhaps, of the situation as the militancy has um, has spread and, uh, and, and the radicalism has escalated. And of course there's word about blowback and and some of these people, um, their own nationals coming back into, you know, from military theaters back home. So, uh, you, you, you do see those admissions more often. I, um, I think, you know, for me it was amazing that Joe Biden, the yes, vice president of the United States exactly. came out and said, and said that, uh, you know, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and I think he said the UAE have basically armed and funded al-Qaeda. They were so willing, they were so um, desperate to overthrow uh, Bashar al-Assad, Syria's president, that they threw everything they had, not caring where the funds and the weapons were going. Um, But, you know, clearly the U.S. has known this all along. Um, So, you know, the fact that he tried to push the blame on, American allies, while, you know, in many of these instances, it was um, the, the CIA headed up operations in terms of transportation of these yes. weapons to the borders is is laughable. Uh, and, and but, but you know, even I think there was last year, late last year, there was a Senate hearing and um, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Martin Dempsey, when asked if, um, um, you know. American allies were supportive of ISIS, came out and said, um, I know of, I know of um, close uh, sorry, close Arab allies who are funding ISIS, you know, so the, 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 um, the admissions are all there, why the media is not reporting this, Um, because it's quite scandalous uh i you know well and ac-
0: and actually you know what's interesting about that too um i've I, it's funny because i've cited the article so many times in so many pieces that i literally have the whole thing memorized in june of 2012 now we're talking Three years ago, long before this, the 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 ISIS phenomenon emerged. Long before we were able to openly talk about these things, in June of 2012, the New York Times published an article headline: uh, CIA said to steer arms to rebels in Syria. And I mean, it documented clearly that the CIA was working with the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood along the border in Turkey to funnel arms to the fighters inside of Syria. Now, at the time, they were still talking. About the quote-unquote rebels, and they've been talking about the so-called rebels now for a long, long time. But more and more, it's now out in the open exactly who was getting these weapons. Whether you want to say that was an unintended consequence or an intended consequence is really somewhat secondary. I think the reality is it's now out in the open that they've been doing that. Let me throw one other piece of information out there. In 2012, within a month of that article being published in the New York Times, Reuters published a story about a terrorist so-called rebel training camp in this in the Turkish city of Adana now I'm sure you know this but Adana is literally a short drive from one of the most important and largest NATO bases anywhere in the region at Incherlik now if you're going to tell me that the United States and its western allies didn't know that there was a terrorist training camp just down the road in Turkey I'm going to say that that's absolutely unbelievable
1: yeah you know, um for those of us focused on Syria from this angle and writing counter narratives, <clears throat> it's shocking how long it's taken for the mainstream to top on to to these stories. They have mentioned these things here and there, but then they shut themselves up yeah, there's when no they realize where the yeah that that that, that it's counter narratives counter their own narratives, you know, so <clears throat> you know, I had a Jordanian journalist friend who who was at the Turkish border. And he said, you know, Charmin, you can go in in the morning and there's a Saudi guy there or a Saudi national there. <clears throat> you can ask for weapons. Say, I have, I have, um, a group of a hundred fighters. Okay. And by the afternoon, you'll have all the weapons you want. Mm-hmm. And, and we've known this for such a long time. I, I don't know why it's taken this long for the narrative to catch up and, and, Part of it is because the Western media is so highly compromised and, and, and you know, feeds at the trough of its government's narratives uh, to the point where, you know, I question all stories now. Covering Syria has taught me a lot
0: absolutely uh, about so
1: media and politics def- right
0: definitely definitely a litmus test i think and the coverage of syria has been atrocious to say the least and that is not only within the mainstream media but also the pseudo-alternative media a lot of these quote-unquote alternative media outlets especially of the so-called progressive left have not only dropped the ball i think they've played a really insidious role in all of this and i think that kind of leads me into uh, our our next topic although it's of course directly related they really can't be separated from Syria, and that's the developments in Iraq, because, well, that same pseudo-alternative left back in, you know, the previous the previous decade, they were perfectly willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with the rest of us who were in opposition to the Bush War in Iraq, but somehow when it's a, uh, a Democrat in office and a liberal government or whatever you want to call it, somehow it's a little bit more tricky, but anyway, uh, leaving that aside, let's focus a little bit on Iraq, Charmaine, I know you've written a lot about it. I have as well. And um, the situation there, sometimes it seems like it's gone from bad to worse. Um, So, what What is your perspective on the latest developments there, especially Anbar province in the western part of Iraq? Um, ISIS has a lot of uh, footholds there. Of course, the major development, I guess, in the past few months was the fall of Ramadi. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that and how you see uh, the situation with ISIS and the so-called ostensible war against ISIS.
1: Well, I- ISIS is, um, you know, its origins are... Uh, Iraq and al-Qaeda in Iraq and um so you know Syria became because of the destabilization in Syria and the chaos created and the fact that the Syrian army was focused on key um populated areas uh and 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 left i guess um vast vast areas of you know empty land near the Iraqi border um to go fight those battles elsewhere uh, Syria became suddenly a a possible um, hub for Al Qaeda in Iraq, where they could regroup and train, um, and, uh, and 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 which they did. And <clears throat> so when they when they you know shocked the world by going into Iraq in June 2014 and uh, taking over Mosul and sort of you know whipping through the country and making their presence known um, you know it was it, it was a an awakening for the rest of us I mean this is something Syria had been experiencing uh, quite actively for a few years and and now suddenly Iraq and particularly when they started heading towards Kurdish territory um, the world woke up and and took and took notice because of course the, the Kurdish project of carving out <clears throat> an autonomous Kurdish area in Iraq is an American project. Exactly. So when ISIS got close to Kurdish territory, that's when we saw um, U.S. forces uh, come together and, 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 and really become active. And it's when we saw the most airstrikes um, in Syria. And of course nine nine months later, we've seen much fewer than just in those weeks, you know, because in fact the the u s co- led coalition doesn't particularly care about other areas if you despite the rhetoric from American officials about keeping a unified Iraq in action, they've done everything to cleave to the original Joe Biden plan. <laughs> Um, which is to to let uh, Iraq um, divide into, you know, federalism, to let Iraq um, break up into three autonomous areas, a Kurdish area, a Sunni area, and a Shiite area. Um, So things came to a head again with, uh, just recently, with ISIS um, uh, taking over Ramadi in the Anbar province, a uh, heavily Sunni area, and... uh, they, excuse me, the, uh, of course, Ramadi had been uh, defended by the, the ISF, the Iraqi uh, forces, security forces, for a full 18 months before. So when American officials say that uh, Ash Carter said that um, Iraqis lack the will yeah. uh, to, to fight, it was, a, it was crazy. It was insulting to Iraqis who have been holding ISIS off for a very long time and have regained territory from them in many areas. Of course, we don't see those in the headlines. We only see the ISIS takeovers. You know, I, sometimes when they talk about ISIS propaganda and we have to, like, not allow these scenes to be viewed, you know, there's there's no better ISIS propaganda than the Western media. That's exactly right. It highlights, it highlights the victories and the progress, and it underplays the, the, the defeats Um very much so, and so right now in Iraq, as we're seeing it, okay, so people, uh, the the central government uh, regrouped because now he's viewed as a weak Iraqi prime minister. I'm oh, sorry, president that that suits that suits the Americans. He keeps sort of a balance between Iranian interests and American interests there, and so basically gets nothing done. Um, and uh, he losing Ramadi. Was a wake-up call for him too. He couldn't just sit back anymore, and so green he, he greenlighted the um, participation of the Hash, the uh, primarily Shia militias, to to go in with the um, uh, you know with the okay of major Sunni Anbar tribes, <clears throat> who had obviously lost ground in this too, in the ISIS takeover from Mahdi. Uh, to 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 then you know go back and, and, and take take back territory, so we've we've seen that project start, and now you have a uh, you know uh, what's being planned is a hushed onslaught to take back these areas, but alongside the hushed, as we saw in Tikrit, actually are thousands of Sunni fighters. Okay, so um, so that you know nobody can call this a Sunni Shiite conflict which is a wonderful thing. And, of course, the buy-in from the Sunni tribes in, in Anbar. Um, there's always been, you know, the, the problem is the Americans have ad nauseum argued that we can't do anything unless we have Sunni support. They've spent years trying to build up Sunni support. Um, and there, there, there isn't. I mean, there's no real Sunni leadership throughout the entire Middle East that honestly reflects Sunni sentiments about major issues. So the, the Sunni that you will rally around things like this are Sunni who have, been, who have taken some hits. But um, funnily enough, and maybe not so funny, are, is the fact that, and I, I wrote about this in a recent article of mine, that um, when, uh, when, when the Americans were flying over contingents of, of, of uh, Sunni leaders from Unbar and other areas to Washington, um, for meet and greet sessions, and you know, to see if they would be our, their newest allies in 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 Iraq, um, they completely neglected to include in these delegations the Albu Alwan and Albu Nimr tribes, who have been slaughtered by ISIS. So these are the, the 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 Sunni tribes that are on the forefront of the fight against ISIS in Sunni areas, and yet Washington ignores them. Um, so let's not look to Um, Sunni militias to fight this off, part of the problem, of course, is whether with families or with tribes, in all Sunni areas, you have a bit of a split. Some of these people um, have helped ISIS, uh, you know, enter these areas, have colluded with ISIS, and the other ones uh, are are killed, (laughs) are, are killed or tortured or threatened by ISIS, so they remain quiet. Um, so these are not the partners of the future to look at uh, toward. Uh, and 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 right now, if we want to sort of sum up what's happening in Iraq since the ISIS takeover of Ramadi, there have been movements to take back areas. And you know the the other side um, tends to, whether it's in Syria or in Iraq, they they move slowly, they move carefully, they don't bring ten thousand people, they bring a few thousand, and they move incrementally. They they, um, they learn the lay of the land. They learn where weapons are kept. They learn who's, who's, who's spying on who, who's allied with who before they go in, um, because they obviously don't want to lose men in these battles, and they don't want to lose any battles, which is why when they finally start, they rarely lose. Um, so right now, there's movement around Ramadi to take back uh, neighborhoods and areas, um, but the big battle has not started and probably won't start quite yet. <clears throat> On the other side of Iraq, and this is also something we're not reading about, the Iraqi forces, the ISF, has is slowly been cutting off ISIS from uh, eastern Iraq. So right now, 80% of the Salahuddin and Diyala provinces are under Iraqi control. They've retaken Baiji. they've retaken... Other areas, and they're moving in. They're they're doing their job. So, you know, certainly there are Iraqis with the will. This is an existential threat for them, Um, and 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 they're fighting the fight. And the Iraqi government's goal right now is to cut ISIS off from the eastern and central parts of the state, um, and to keep ISIS isolated in Anbar and Nineveh province. Mosul is in Nineveh. Um, and uh, further uh, beyond that, it's not quite clear yet um, because I've heard varying sources tell me that, um, you know, we can, we can push ISIS uh, in, from inside Syria and from inside Iraq to the border and surround them there. Others have said, no, we don't want them to congregate on the border. We want to push them inside both countries of the border and besiege them in their key strongholds. So, you know, beyond what I've said, it's not certain what the next steps are.
0: I think that's an excellent roundup. Um, gosh, we could probably do three hours on, on, on just what's going on in Iraq, but um, yeah. we're, we're running out of time and I want to finish up on just following up on some of the points that you just made because everything you said is correct and I agree with all of it. But I think that there's another element to this that really, um, well, I mean, we've been saying it throughout our entire conversation here, but it's also eliminated from the narrative, at least from the mainstream corporate media narrative. And that is the really insidious or pernicious role that the United States government and military forces are playing in Iraq. And what I mean by that is, in many ways, they're subverting any attempts by the central government in Baghdad to consolidate. Its military forces into a cohesive whole so that they can actually combat ISIS and win this war. Because what you've actually seen is that the US government, the House of Representatives and the Senate both have moved to uh, arm independently the Sunni factions and the Kurdish factions, independent mm. of the government in Baghdad. Now, what that essentially means is a de facto fracturing of the military forces. If you have different supply lines, different weapons going to the Sunni elements and to the Kurdish elements than you, than you give to the central government in Baghdad, it can only exacerbate these tensions. And I think that really brings us back to what you said earlier about the Biden plan, because in in effect what you're seeing then is a de facto partitioning of the country along these sectarian lines by the United States and from my perspective that is a that is coherent and that is a strategy that they've followed really for a long, long time, and it's one that's really not discussed so much in the but in the context of ISIS, that's precisely what they're doing. At the same time, Shermin, you know, we have reports from Iraqi military sources and Iraqi parliamentarians that not once or twice or Or even ten or even a dozen, but probably hundreds of times, there have been airstrikes that have been carried out against ISIS and against the militia forces, against ISIS and Iraqi military forces. And so, really, what I see is that the U.S. is attempting to sow chaos as much as possible to create dividing lines within the Iraqi uh, political body and the military body for the purposes of being able to keep the Iranians out. I think that ultimately, It's about curbing and checking and blocking Iranian influence in Iraq. And they're doing it with violence, with terrorism and with war.
1: You know, everything you've said is correct. And this is just, you know, it it perplexes me um, what the U.S. government's goals are. Okay. Forget what they say, even in actions. All right. Because they'll push on one front and you're convinced that's their strategy. That's their goal. And then they push on another front. Right. I've always said that the U.S. is so far away from this region that it can actually afford to play a double game. You know, it's not really going to affect the United States too much. So they can afford whoever um, gains in this area, the U.S. can afford to play with them, you know, whether it's you know, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt or the CC government, they have they have ways to benefit from both. You know, the, the U.S. is opportunistic. But I think it's really important for us to drill down and try to figure out what is going on within the U.S. government. It'll help us understand a heck of a lot more. And my upcoming article is actually on this subject because I've been perplexed too long. I've decided to try to tackle the subject And it's about, um, you know, I call this strategic dissonance, America's strategic dissonance. And it comes down to one thing. Is it Al-Qaeda or is it Iran? What is the U.S. strategy? Okay, because is Iran the bigger threat or is Al-Qaeda the bigger threat from Washington's perspective? I don't think Washington settled on that answer. And I think this is why we see... Um, conflicted responses, you know, um, lack of cohesion, unclear strategies, unclear objectives, um, because they have not answered that critical question. What is America's goal? Because if you're tackling Al-Qaeda, you're tackling the entire um, apparatus of Sunni leadership, in this region, because who's helped fund, who's helped support al-Qaeda ultimately? The U.S.'s closest um, um, Gulf allies, okay? Um, Which means, defeating al-Qaeda means an ascending Iran, all right? Almost automatically. Let's say you go after Iran, you crush Iran, what happens then? Then you have Um, The Sunni front is wide open and radicals always rise to the top, so you will have more Al-Qaeda. Uh, the, the, the American establishment has just not decided on that. And this is why I call it strategic dissonance.
0: Wow. I I wish I had at least another hour with you to dissect that answer because I agree with a lot of it. I have maybe some slight disagreements with some of that, but we're going to have to leave it uh, until another time. Um, I would love to have you back on to unpack a lot more of these issues, um, you know, I think that what you're getting at, though, and what we're sort of coming out of this conversation with, is is a very important point, and that is, namely, that the the understanding that those of us in the West or really around the world have of that region and of the developments in that region is to some uh, to some degree an anachronism. That things are changing dramatically, and that uh, paying attention to what's happening in Syria, paying attention to what's happening in Iraq, paying attention to what's happening in Iran, for that. Matter all of these things allow us, I think, to have a better gauge on where this whole region is heading. Because you're absolutely right, the era of total U.S. dominance and total U.S. hegemony is over. What the next era will usher in, I think, that is really the most interesting question of all. So, uh, with that being said, Sharmin Narwani, again, political commentator, geopolitical analyst. You can find her work all over the place. Follow her on Twitter. That's uh, Charmine N at Charmine N. Um, Um, let's see, what, what am I missing? You're a contributor to RT and many other places.
1: That's at S Narwani actually. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes.
0: Sorry, S-S-Narwani <laughs> yeah. at S-Narwani. My, <laughs> sorry about that. Um in any, in any event, um, thank you again for coming on Counterpunch Radio. And listeners, stick with us after the break. Going to have a very interesting guest. I'm hoping if everything goes well with the phone connection, we are going to have an eyewitness account on the ground from Syria. What's going on in the city of Sueda? What's going on around the country? So stick with us. We'll be right back.
2: Life is a die- that must want- sound
0: Back to Counterpunch Radio. Um, I have a very, very important and wonderful guest with me now. Um, as promised, we are going to get an inside perspective from Syria from an important political activist, um, Reem Saker. If you don't know her, you could definitely uh, you could definitely find some of her presentations on YouTube, and um, she's quite active on the issue of Syria. And um, normally we would be speaking to her from Australia, but we're lucky enough to get her on the line actually from Syria right now. So Reem Saker, political activist, Syrian-Australian, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, Before we get into some of the important um, uh, points that I wanted to discuss, can you just give a little bit of background about yourself um, and uh, your experiences in Syria?
3: Sure, yeah. Um, So I was born in uh, Australia, but uh, when I was quite young, my family and I traveled uh, to Syria. So my parents are uh, both Syrian, and um, so we, we moved to Syria where we lived for a few years. Um, So yeah, I I, I lived here, I basically grew up here, went to school, uh, learnt, you know, the culture and um, the language. Uh, And then um, after that, I went went back to Australia, where I studied uh, journalism. And uh, since the war started in Syria, I've been involved in, um, I guess, uh, online activism and um, basically just trying to, to convey uh, what really is, is happening um, back home uh, in, you know, in the country that my parents were born in, in the country that I lived in when I was younger.
0: Yeah, and you know, I follow a lot of your of, of your work online, and you know, I think it's some of the I think it's some of the best. I mean, you provide important analysis, important insight, especially for those of us who follow this issue closely, but who aren't so familiar with the culture, who can't read in Arabic, who don't know a lot of the ins and outs of Syria. So, I think that your perspective is a is a really important one. Now, um, I want to just ask you very generally. Um, What is, I mean, you're in Syria now, I mean, what is the mood of people in Syria uh, in a general way? I mean, I get the impression that while, of course, you can hear a lot of people who are optimistic, a lot of people who want to, you know, always kind of put on the bravest face, I just want to get a little bit of a take. I mean, is there any war fatigue? Are people getting tired of this? I mean, how are people generally feeling? Uh,
3: Look, there definitely is some of that. So, it really depends, um, you know, when, when, when you t- talk about Syria or when you tell people you come in Syria or anything like that, people outside, they get, they get quite worried. Uh, you know, um, people outside Syria, they think that, you know, the whole country is, is, you know, on fire and up in war. It's not like that. It really depends where you are. Mm-hmm. And so some areas are more affected than other areas. Um, for example, you know, Damascus is probably more affected than where I am now, which is in Sweden in the, in the south of Syria. Um, but there wherever you go, there is war fatigue um, and you know despite you know that doesn't mean that people you know have given up or are not resisting no uh, you know all over Syria people are resisting the war, and uh, fighting the war is you know the only option that they have but they you know they, they, they are they are very much fatigued and for for a number of reasons. So you've got, you know, the military side of the war. Uh, a lot of families, you know, it, it, it'd be really hard to find a family who hasn't, you know, they haven't lost a, a member um, of, you know, uh, there's in the war, um, uh, someone who, you know, hasn't, hasn't died while fighting in the army or someone who hasn't kidnapped by terrorist groups or something like that. So that does uh you know affect the people very much but then there's also the uh, economic side of the war and um that you know is what the sanctions imposed in syria has affected so uh, for example inflation has gone through the roof here a lot of people um, struggle to buy the things that they used to buy very easily before the war started um so, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to find, uh, you know, jobs uh, a lot less now. Um, so people are struggling in, in that way. But, you know, fighting the war and resisting the war is the only option that the Syrian people have. So they, you know, they, they continue to do that. And when you, when you speak to people, you know, they say, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, think it's expensive to live here now. Um, but... You know they've got no other option but but to resist because this really is a war of survival for the Syrian people.
0: There's no doubt about it, and uh, I, one of the things that I'm one of the things that I'm wondering, and you kind of already touched on it a little bit, has to do with daily life. You know, because like I said already, um, you know I follow the issue closely, and I I can really kind of provide analysis from a political perspective. But I think that and a, a lot of people can do that, but. To get a sense of what a person 's normal day is like and how their normal day has been affected, I mean give us a, paint us a little bit of a picture about that. I mean, I know that where you are right now it 's not quite the same as you know in uh, places closer to the Turkish border or maybe closer to some of the other borders or some of the other uh, fighting but how is daily life generally affected? I mean, you talked about inflation. What about some of the other things that people have to deal with? Some of the obstacles maybe we should be considering?
3: Yeah, So, hey, for example, so uh, before the war, you know, Syria uh, was known for a few things. One of those uh, things would be probably that it was such a safe country to live in. Um, and I think it's probably, it was probably ranked like the fourth uh, safest in the world. And that really was, you know, what it was like when I was living here when I was younger. Um, people would, you know, during the summer, you know, it was quite hot, out, you know, outside. And so it was a normal thing for people to sleep outside on their balconies, um, to, you know, go to bed, leave their doors unlocked. Uh, we even, when, when, you know, we'd get guests, visiting from you know outside from australia or wherever else and they'd uh come and lock their doors you know to sleep we you know some of our relatives would would laugh at them and think oh that was so weird that they're locking the doors like because nothing ever happened so right now you know people uh double lock their doors um and you know they they sleep with their weapons next to them uh and so that takes me to the second point uh everybody is is armed now, so I don't remember ever seeing a gun when I was younger in Syria. Um, you just didn't, you just didn't need guns. Uh, there was no gun violence. There's no, there's hardly any violence of any kind actually. Um, you could walk in the street at any you know hour uh, that you wanted, and nothing would ever, you know, it just, it just never happened. Like things, violence or crime, it just really did not happen. Um, the worst kind of crime that you would come across is probably like someone stealing something of yours. Um, but but now it it is such an important thing for people to be armed. Um, uh, every house is armed, actually, and, you know, with different kinds of weapons, and it's all for self-defence. Um, but what really strikes me as particularly sad is that a lot of houses have not just you know, the normal weapons to defend themselves, but um, grenades, you know, and they're basically suicide grenades. So, you know, you speak to them and they say, well, when you've used everything that you have to defend, you you know, yourself and your family and uh, you're still in danger, then you use the grenade to basically kill yourself. And that just shows the, the fear that, you know, people have... Uh, uh, of, of these of these terrorist groups, and I don't need to go into that. You know, um, the West is very much aware of the barbarity of groups such as ISIS. What the West is not aware of, or what probably they don't want to be aware of, and they're not being told to be aware of, that ISIS are not the only terrorist groups uh, in the Middle East, and they're not the only terrorist groups in Syria. Uh, they basically there's no difference between them, or Jabhat al-Nusra, or uh, uh, you know, Ahrat Sham or FSA or any of these groups, you know, that, that are, are fighting currently in Syria. And so basically the Syrian people would rather kill themselves than be taken alive uh by these terrorists and then um you know have their videos uploaded on YouTube when they're getting their, their heads sort off for their families to see. Um other than that, you know it's I, I did speak about inflation, but uh, things such as water and electricity have become, uh, you know, a luxury in, in, in Syria. So you don't, with, you know, there, there isn't electricity all hours of the day. Some areas, or at night, some areas are better than other areas. Um, but that is also due to uh, these uh, malicious bombing gas pipes and power plants and things like that and uh, that you know also goes to show you what kind of a uh, revolution this really is um, when they have basically done every thing possible to make life hard for the Syrian people uh, what these militias have done is not just fight let's say the, the Syrian army or the Syrian government but they have Systematically work to punish the Syrian people for not supporting uh, their their armed uh, uprising.
0: You know, that's a great point. Um, something that I think a lot of people need to consider also is that, um, and you know, this is one of the phrases that I always use when I'm talking about it, that this is a this is not a quote unquote civil war in Syria. This is a war on Syria. This is a war on the state of Syria, on the Syrian people. And just as you described, I think that's exactly what, what you're talking about here. It's a war against Syria and against the Syrian people and the destruction of infrastructure, the destruction of these. Vital resources. I mean, that's all a part of that.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think you know, one of when, when when people do talk about civil civil war in Syria, well, first of all, a civil war is between you know two sides of uh, you know two groups, let's say in in or or even more in in one country. But the fact that this war has attracted so many foreigners and not you know are a year into the conflict as um western or corporate media sources state or like after the syrian government supposedly cracked down on peaceful protesters uh no this this uh, this this war attracted foreign uh involvement and foreign fighters from the beginning so you know the fact that they call it a civil war is a, a blatant lie and uh you know, and a revolution. Revolutions, revolutions are meant to, you know, bring countries uh, from bad to to to, to better. But uh, what what we've seen in Syria is that uh, people were living. You know, it, it wasn't a paradise. Uh, of course, it did have its issues and it did have its problems. But this. Uprising never gave the Syrian people a better alternative to what they were living. And nobody in their right mind would seriously uh, oppose reforms or a genuine revolution. And that's something that I find quite um, offensive uh, to the people who are opposing uh, this this uprising uh, in Syria, or let's say who support the Syrian army, even that they they always get labelled as pro Assad supporters, uh, pro this or you know, and it's just such a childish and immature thing to to you know to do on behalf of Western politicians and and Western media sources, uh, but even Arab as well, like corporate, I should say corporate media sources. Um nobody, nobody like I'm saying, nobody in their right mind, no decent human being would oppose reforms. And Syria needed a lot of reforms. And you can ask any Syrian person, no one's going to say, oh, no, we are living perfectly and our country needed nothing. But the, this uprising or if this, this so-called revolution never gave the Syrian people a better alternative. And you can find, you know, even, even until now, the people who are calling for the downfall of the Syrian government, if you ask them what their alternative is, they don't have one. And so it is extremely irresponsible and not just irresponsible, but, it, you know, it gets to the point of just um, wicked even for people to call for the downfall of a democratically elected government to destroy this, you know, a nation when they're not willing to take that country, uh, you know, or give it an alternative to deal with. Um, Yeah.
0: No, I think that that's a great point. Um, The other thing that I would add to that, too, and I've, I've hammered this point home a million times as well, is that. In 2011, when all of this was really beginning against the backdrop of the so-called Arab Spring, um, you know, there were there were indigenous groups inside of Syria calling for reform, uh, you know, the, the local coordinating councils, the national coordinating committees, all of these various groups which represented a wide variety of uh, ideas and platforms, all of those groups that were part of the, uh, you know, the opposition at that time calling for reforms, they all support the government now they're all uh, in in favor of defending the country against an international onslaught so the very character of the conflict has altered because of the internationalization of it because this has turned into an imperialist terror war on the people and on the country
3: absolutely and and those you know opposition sides that that you, men- you mentioned the political opposition inside Syria um, they're basically silenced, and no one really knows about them. Like, for example, the, the SSMP, so the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, um, the leader of the SSMP is, uh, you know, he, he leads a, a government ministry in Syria, the Ministry of Reconciliation, and they, are, they are, do oppose the Ba'ath Party, uh, but they also oppose the the armed opposition inside Syria, but these people are never um, they're never given a voice, and they're basically you know non-existent uh, to to the people who are calling for the downfall of the Syrian government. In, it, in you know instead of that, they have um, they they created that the government in exile, the the SNC. I'm not sure what they call it now, but they've they've changed. Um, you know who the leader is so many times mm-hmm. uh and it's just uh, it's quite laughable that the Syrian government is you know has been declared illegitimate and you know that they don't re- really represent the um the Syrian people, but this group in exile, who no Syrian has heard of before and who was put together uh, by the United States and you know their their NATO mates. Um, that they 're the, the legitimate representatives of the Syrian people, um, but, but the, the, the political opposition inside Syria is very much respected by the Syrian people. They support uh, the Syrian government, maybe not you know not, not politically, but they support it in its fight against terrorism, and mm-hmm. they absolutely support the Syrian army. And I'd like to say, if there is one body that has more support than the Syrian government or Bashar al-Assad, you know, particularly, it is the Syrian army.
0: That's a that's also really, I think, um, a critical thing to to nail down for people that. Inside of Syria, because the way that the perspective that we're all given here is that there's only one, um, there's only one figure of authority, and that's Assad, the dictator, etc, etc, ad nauseum. But in fact, I think the point that you're making here is that people inside of Syria can separate how they think about the various institutions of their country, they can make a separation between the political leadership in Damascus, and the Syrian army, which is actually Actually, on the ground, fighting, defending their families, defending their cities. Um, I think that's really a, a, an important point to make.
3: It, it absolutely is, and like you said, so you know, Assad of the government are the political, uh, you know, side of Syria, the political representation of Syria. But the Syrian army, uh, when they when they get called, you know, in a lot of articles you'd read, are uh, forces loyal to Assad or Assad's forces. Uh, that's uh, absolutely wrong. And a uh, propaganda they not be term. Called that.
0: That's a propaganda term to, in order exactly. to associate it, them in the in the minds of the West.
3: It absolutely is. Just you know, and no, they are the people's army. They are the nation's army. You know, I always make the point of saying that Assad does not have soldiers of his own. These are not Assad soldiers. These are the Syrian people. Like I mentioned before, every family in Syria uh, has. A brother, or a son, or a father that is fighting in that army, and that is why you know when when they try and paint um, the Syrian people's support or whoever supports uh, not just Assad but the army as these just blind, uh, brain dead, you know worshippers, it's just it's it's absolutely offensive because these the army the army they they're our families they're our they're our brothers and our sons. It's it's the people's army. They are not Assad's forces. Uh, Assad, you know, leads the army, but, that, but that's it.
0: Great point. Um, I know that we're limited on time here, so I want to close our discussion by asking you uh, a question that I almost never hear anybody address. Um, and so I guess <laughs> I'd like to address it now. Um, is there a sense of people in Syria um collectively or even individually that you've spoken to that progress is being made i mean do people feel like this is going somewhere or do they feel like this is just a quagmire that they find themselves in with no real hope of um ever coming out of it i mean how are people emotionally and psychologically thinking about this conflict
3: uh well i right now um uh, I'm in, I'm in Sweda, and you probably know that uh, things are, are quite uh, heating up in the um, the, the, su- the south of Syria. And so just you know, to give a little bit of a background, uh, Sweda is now under threat from uh, ISIS uh, from one side and Jabhat al-Nusra, which is uh, Syria's al-Qaeda from another side. And uh, uh, Sweda has pretty much been left out of the war until now, now. Um, but, you know, when people are organizing. People are very, very organized here. The province has basically been sealed off from the outside. When you're inside, it's like nothing is going on on the outside. Like you don't even feel like you're in a country that's been at war for four and a half years. Um, so, there, you know, there's absolutely no sign of defeat here um, because... You know, the Syrian people don't have anywhere else to go. I'm going to talk about Sweden particularly. They don't have anywhere else to go. And they they say, we're not going to go anywhere else. So fighting the war and winning the war is their only option. And they will tell you this is a battle for their survival. And um, basically they're willing to throw everything they have at these invaders who have come into their country. So uh, people very much have, you know, even after four and a half years, their morales are up. Um, they, you know, they, they they do believe, though, that the the end of the war will only happen when a political solution is reached between the world powers who have, um, uh, you know, are running the show to, let's say, Russia and, and the U.S. and uh and that Syria is just a play field for, for these powers. Um, but, you know, until then, they, they are making good gains on the ground. Um, they are willing to defend their homes and their, 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 their families. And so uh, they, they will keep doing that.
0: Yeah, I I really appreciate that perspective, and uh, I I wish we had more time to talk here. But um, uh, Reem Saker, I want to thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio and providing this really important perspective. And um, again, uh, listeners, you you know you should try to follow Reem online if you can. Um, her videos are on YouTube. She's um, I think one of the mo- one of the most insightful political activists and analysts on this issue, and somebody who can provide a really important perspective. So. Reem thanks so much for coming on the program.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Eric. Thank you.
0: And uh, listeners, um, we'll speak to you all once again real soon. Thank you again.